0: And get that pre order in, and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support.
1: Much love. Thank you.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. Well, you know, recently I had that podcast episode with Francis Weller where we explored the relationship to darkness, the relationship to our soul. I love that conversation. I love that conversation of exploring the, what is mysterious, what is mystical. And this week we are certainly in for the greatest of pleasures. You're going to be blown away by this week's guest who is an author, a mystic, and a dream worker. Not a dream worker. What does that tell me more about that? I was reading when I checked out her website. She has a really incredible book called Belonging, and it's uh, her name is Tokopa Turner. And when I was checking out her website, I saw that she is sometimes called a midwife of the psyche. What a cool title! It's like midwife of the psyche. Please deliver us, our psyche, be the space between, as she mentions, the, the liminal space. So I'm really excited for you to experience this week's podcast, this week's episode, as we continue to deepen our levels of inquiry, as we dive into what is mysterious and mystical, which is you. So without further ado, here is Tokuba Turner. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Tokopat Turner, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today.
1: Oh, it's my joy and pleasure to be here with you, Mark. Thank you.
0: Well, you know, the your work uh, comes so topically, you know, to the current state of affairs, but I, I would argue that it's always topical to the current state of affairs as humans, maybe just uh, explicitly really exemplified right now, you know, your work on uh, the subject of belonging, and I, I think so much of our circuitry is designed uh, in need of that. And so I'm curious, first, uh, uh, what really led you to adventure into that subject matter and write the words that you have?
1: Yeah, so writing about belonging really came out of a personal quest to discover why I felt so little of it. <laughs> and um, so my book Belonging is is part memoir, and I do tell a bit of my own story in the book. Um, but I grew up in kind of an unusual way in that I was really exiled from my family at such a young age and uh, ended up living in the system when I was about 14 years old, going on 15. And little did I know at the time when I was placed into the system that that I would essentially and effectively become an orphan and um, lose all connection with family and having a support system and have been living independently ever since. As a result, you can sort of imagine that a lot of the normal sort of initiatory steps that a person takes to integrate into culture, into social life... I missed the steps and Mm -hmm. as a result often felt outside of belonging even at the most basic levels. And so, you know, I focused a lot on survival and making it work and taking care of myself and uh, overcoming those difficult beginnings. And it really wasn't until I would say about seven or eight years ago, that um, in a place of security and safety and well-being in my life, that I started to have the resources to really ask myself why I was plagued with this feeling of not belonging. You know, I would have these questions which would come up, which I think they do for a lot of people like, who are my people? Where is my place of belonging? What is this feeling that I don't have that I seem to see other people having, which is a, a sense of belonging in their lives and in their work and in their relationships and communities? And so I started to talk to people about it just in my own community. And I was sort of amazed to discover that I wasn't alone, that actually mm-hmm. even those people who appeared from the outside to have a sense of belonging to me um, themselves were plagued with this question of where is where is my place of belonging? And so this started to enter me deeper into relationship and apprenticeship with these questions. That was sort of what began the journey of writing about this. So ultimately, uh, I'm less of an expert in belonging than I am an expert in not belonging. <laughs> and okay. as a result, I really needed to investigate those questions because what I discovered was the longing to belong drives so many of us into places of false belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to try and fit in, uh, to try and achieve that sense of belonging, even though it's not enduring. And so it unconsciously drives so many of us to make decisions and get into relationships and do all kinds of things because we're not really looking at this question squarely and taking inventory of what the origins of our estrangement really are that landed us in this place of deficit in the first place.
0: Well, what a beautiful invitation to inquiry, to even understand what is this feeling that we all need, that I seek, that you know, I really related to what you said about people around you who seemingly were in community or in connection or in belonging experiencing this mystical thing, or at least uh, the illusion of experiencing it. And I think about that for myself that, you know, I certainly felt a sense, I did feel a sense of not belonging in, you know, like late elementary school, junior high sort of thing. And then as we start to adapt in order to belong like we start to put masks on we start to pretend we start to like things we don't like we start you know it's like the the uh, the abandonment of authenticity uh, you know in order to belong and i really relate to that because i think of so much of so as you said so many of us are under the appearance of belonging but actually are quite lonely within our communities indeed yeah, so I'm curious in your experience of, of that search, of that search, like as you're asking people who are actually doing that, were they sort of like, oh, actually, wait, I, I don't know what belonging is either?
1: Yeah, I mean, what, oh, oh, you know, I think all great creativity really starts in the personal and um for me that was absolutely true in this case as well that i really needed to enter into the wound itself in order to get a sense of the dimensions the dimensionality of belonging to figure out you know what really were the origins in my own life of this wound and how far back really did it go and so what i discovered for myself was It really operates at three different levels, three different levels. We have the level of the personal, of course, which is our family homes. So this is where, you know, we grow up in a family that retains a certain culture. Every family has its own culture, and that culture has its dogmas. And those dogmas usually involve the aggrandizing of certain sets of qualities like, let's say, intelligence, extroversion, ambition, strength, beauty, things like that. Or even, let's say, athleticism. It, you know, it can vary from family to family. Um, but at the same time, it devalues and diminishes, or sometimes worst of all, doesn't even acknowledge a whole other set of qualities. And these qualities could look like, artistic creativity, they could look like sensitivity. They might look like spirituality the feeling life, you know, all kinds of things. And so you see this this split begins to happen because we unconsciously learn that if we want to belong in our own family, we're going to have to adapt and grow those qualities which are celebrated and perhaps even hide or not discover these other sets of qualities. And over time, that split off self becomes so pronounced that we become estranged from those things ourselves. So that's just at the first level. But then the second level is the level of culture. And this is a big topic of conversation because depending on the culture that we live in, the same process happens where the culture values certain things and devalues others. And um, so then when we enter into social life of any kind, whether it's the workplace or school or church or whatever it is, the same process is more solidified where we are taught that there are certain things that are just not acceptable or appreciated. And we learn to hide. Um, As you so beautifully put, we cut ourselves off from our own authenticity we distance ourselves from it. And then what I discovered is there's this third level, which is so important, which is the ancestral level. Mm. And this is where estrangement happens at these profound intergenerational uh, traumas that have occurred either through You know, diasporas like the African slave trade or the Jewish diaspora, but most of us, even Europeans, can trace back just a couple of generations and find that there was a point at which the indigenous origins of our people will have been displaced from their land of origin, from their culture of origin, from their language, from their traditions, from their um, songs and recipes and way of dress and so on. And so this is a profound loss as well. So this was a huge revelation for me mm-hmm. as I discovered that belonging doesn't actually begin with the self which is very much a Western way of thinking of all of our problems is with the self. But actually there are these epigenetic problems um, that started long, long ago that we carry in our bones.
0: So that the ancestors, the ancestral experience guides and informs the familial, the cultural experience, and then the familial slash, and then bring it down to our personal and like, and I appreciate what you said about it not starting on a personal level, although one would, and I am certainly guilty of this, uh, believe that it is about finding belonging within self. But in in even that that line of thought is that I am the reason for my own level of being an outcast within myself, which, as you're saying, and I love it, is that actually that started long ago. Like, you're just internally outcast because you're, you're, you're surviving. You're wanting to adapt. You're wanting to belong. That ancestral point, I think was really fascinating when I think of, you know, being someone who is of Irish descent, my mom's from Dublin and my dad's side of the uh, family is uh, more English. And I look at like the connection to land, right? Like the importance of like wanting to protect the things that we're connected to. But if we are of heritage of colonizers, then we're not on land that we're connected to until we become connected to it ourselves. And I I really think that's one of the interesting sort of traumas that uh, we don't think about uh, being from a colonizing experience that we are traumatized in that we are not connected to something that we love, that that matters to us until of course we have conversations like this. And so I'm, curious just to your thoughts as to my ramblings.
1: Yeah, I mean, just such a, such a rich conversation, because there's so many different pieces in there. First of all, the, the piece that we have really been so influenced by a highly rational perspective in our society, it's really the dominant ideology is rationalism, right? And so that affects everything, including psychology and we are very much influenced by this idea that, you know, if you have unhappiness, then you have a problem and you should go into therapy and work it out. But it doesn't address the kind of incredibly traumatizing, ongoingly traumatizing culture that we live and manic, I should say, that we live yeah. in, which which keeps, um, which keeps Traumatizing those of us, uh, all of us, really. And so, you know, and then we can even take that perspective or lens even wider and remember that we are part of an ecosystem. And that ecosystem has been profoundly damaged and continues to be damaged. And so we, I think, we have to start thinking in systems. Um, and, but also the opposite is also true, paradoxically, that we can begin through the portal of the self, through the portal of the psyche, begin to heal some of these things by looking at them and having these kinds of conversations. So, yes, you know, we are colonizers and also we all come from indigenous origins at Mm -hmm. some point, which were themselves colonized. So, um, so how do you hold both of those things at once is the question.
0: Yeah. The ultimate balance of being both the perpetrator and the victim, you know, to be able to hold both and, and both be spaces of learning that are necessary that we can't be afraid to go into the one of perpetration. And I, I think of a line, my friend said that we often, Share the the meme online that says we're the daughters or the sons of the witches they didn't burn, and (laughs) in the recognition of sharing that that we actually likely are the daughters and the sons uh, of the people who did the burning. And I thought that isn't that so interesting that historically we never like to put ourselves in the place of of being the person who does the perpetration. But think about what you said about the ecosystem and. That if you are not in harmony with your own ecosystem, like, is that where the belonging actually begins is to reconnect back to the planet and to be in care and concern for the salmon and for the, you know, that, that if, does it start there or does it start with the ancestral side of things? You know, and I, I know that you mentioned that being able to explore the psyche, being explored, being able to go into that. And so I'm curious, just uh, what is the path of navigation or what might we do?
1: Yeah, well, you know, there's so many different valid paths, right? And you can really take any entry point and, and, you know, have a world of discovery. Um, My particular passion and what I've devoted my life to is working with dreams. And so... I have been teaching others how to understand the language of dreams for the last few decades, um, or couple at least. I shouldn't overage myself. <laughs> and, um, and you know, this is an incredibly magical way to begin this process because, in my experience, the very first place that the alienated self will appear is in our dreams. And so, you know, we were talking earlier about um, how we split ourselves off from the parts of ourselves that aren't accepted or valued in our homes and our culture um, or ancestrally. And we become distant from them ourselves. But they always try to re-belong themselves to us because I think nature's um, orientation is always towards Harmony, and we are no different. And so, dreams, in the way that I understand them and approach them, is that they are nature. They Mm -hmm. are nature, naturing through us. And there is this constant, unrelenting attempt to uh, bring those things that have been separated from us back into integration, back into wholeness with us, back into diversity within. And so, um, so when we work with our dreams, we begin to see the forms of those unconscious fragments that have been split off over time and through generations. We can have dreams that come out of our intergenerational uh, wounds as well. And so I always, you know, either so much, uh, we could say there's so much work to be done, but it's almost as if uh, everything is intact. And what we have to do is unhinder ourselves to that intactness, both within and without. And so, in my experience, when we work with our dreams and when we're paying attention to our psyche and what wants to come back into relationship, or belonging with us, there's a beautiful symmetry that occurs, that it begins to change the way that we live our lives. Because as we come into harmony with what the Taoists call the way, the day, so too do our lives begin to move in harmony with the diversity of others in our midst and as that happens so too do we come into uh, how can i put this um uh an awareness of the multiplicity of languages that are speaking to us all around us and um by that i mean all the different ways that nature speaks to us as well And so I I feel like there is just this beautiful symmetry that takes place as we are listening to our own psyches, that nature that's flowing through us, and listening to what wants to come into belonging, then we quite naturally, as above, so below, begin to have greater tolerance and sensitivity in the world around us for all things, both Mm -hmm. human and the other than human world.
0: So as we begin to acknowledge and maybe pay attention to the invitations that are always occurring to reenter harmony, to uh, bring back into belonging the parts of ourselves that we have outcast. Is, is Am I getting that sort of right?
1: That's exactly it. And maybe I would just add that by harmony, I don't mean the absence of conflict
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> because yeah. that's in there too, you know? <laughs>
0: Well, in that, in that nature in and of itself, I had Francis Weller on the podcast not oh, long I ago.
1: Francis, and I love his work, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I remember he was talking about like nature has decay, it has death, it has all sorts of things, in it. and I love what you're saying, that that is, you know, we're being invited to pay attention, to notice, to, you know, when I think of, in reading your work, what I, you mentioned how when we feel the experience of exile or not belonging, that we are, and I'm paraphrasing, your words were really beautiful, that, that we're essentially being invited to discover sort of the pieces of ourselves that live, that we have put outside of us, that, that we're being invited within. Is that, I'm not getting that kind of right, but I really felt like this yeah, invitation that- of what do I give away?
1: Exactly. When you have that feeling of being outcast, um, usually there's a wound of origin there, where maybe somebody taught you that you weren't good enough, and they cast you out of a place of belonging. And so in a way, it teaches you to um, expect to be outcast. And when you do, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy because you might actually find yourself withdrawing from situations of closeness. You might find yourself anticipating rejection where it doesn't exist. And you might even find that it is you yourself who's casting out the parts of yourself that you haven't grown to accept and love. And so that work does begin at the level of the self. Um, That's not to say that others don't empirically reject you as well. But often in those places where people are rejecting you, it's often a place of false belonging anyway, isn't it? And by false belonging, Mm. I mean a place that is conditional, upon you uh, excluding parts of yourself in order to fit in. You know, there's that great, um, the very earliest story of Cinderella was by the Brothers Grimm. And, um, you know, we have the Disney-fied version now that most people know. But in the, <laughs> in the original story, the ugly stepsisters, when they were trying to fit in to... Cinderella's glass slipper literally cut off their toes in order to fit into those slippers, which is very gruesome, but it's such a compelling image of the difference between fitting in and belonging, right? It's like you literally have to cut parts of yourself off in order to fit in to false belonging. So just returning to what we were speaking about before, that places that exclude parts of ourselves are usually places of false belonging anyway so as we learn to become our whole self unconditionally we no longer seek to belong in places like that because you know we're too big
0: (laughs) right like we are no longer willing to perform for connection that we're not going to put on the mask. Like as we take them off, we're like, I don't want to be in a relationship that asked me to put this heavy thing back on.
1: Yes.
0: I, I, what you said about the Cinderella story, is very fascinating that even in the telling of that story of how we've changed it is the fear of its actual explicit message. That's very obvious, you know, in the telling of the first story. And so even how we do that, you know, Disney has done the same thing to relationships Again, what I'm noticing is just how the culture starts to cultivate messages that then when our own story doesn't fit within it, like a relationship, maybe a struggle or something like that, then we're like, oh, this must not be the relationship for me or this, you know, we start to adhere to the stories that are told around us rather than letting our own story flow through us.
1: Very much so. Um, I know a lot of people have that experience where they might get into a relationship uh, where it's not okay to be angry or sad or feel weak or needy, um, but there's only so long that you can suppress those things before they really start to do damage to the self. But we we have learned in this sort of happily ever after picture <laughs> that those those things you know, are not talked about. And belonging is very much like that too. It's not a thing that we talk about in the open, which is why I felt so compelled to, to open this conversation in the book, because I think we need to start having a talk about those places where not only we might not feel like we belong, but also where we create spaces that are conditional and exclude others as well.
0: Yeah, that conversation is so important because I think what you know, you point out through your journey is that you know, in the experience of an absence of belonging that you learn what it is so then you provide it. You know, you become it. And it's not a really welcome conversation often this idea that wait, our culture is not an invitation to belonging. Like I find that So many of the parts that make us human, the mistakes we make, the relationships that end, the behaviors that maybe are not um, constructive, that they become the reason we are exiled rather than the reason we're held. And, you know, I think so much of like in the moments where we actually need belonging, it is when it is taken away from us. Mm.
1: Mm. Say more about that.
0: Well, I, you know, I think when I was, what really led me on the path to this work was the ending of a relationship when I was 27 and I was, you know, I got engaged. I did all the things I was taught. I was part of that story and, and had outcast a lot of parts of myself that I didn't even realize had outcast that I got to this moment that I was taught to want that you know, I grew up Catholic ish and, you know, was taught to get married by a certain age, have kids by a certain age. And, you know, 27, I was right on schedule for the engagement and the woman I was engaged to, uh, incredible person. And I remember asking her to marry me and her saying yes. And I remember thinking to myself, I think I should be more excited than this. And thinking like, you know, that feeling where you meet a moment you were taught to want. And then when you get it, you realize it isn't actually what you wanted. And, you know, there was, uh, that was really the first time I ever really thought about what's my story? What do I want? How did I get here? And I'm taking another person down a path that is based on my fears, not based on love, not based on expansion, not based on an authentic place of choosing. And I remember looking back being like, I know I chose all these things, but I feel like I didn't. Like, I feel like someone else was driving the car. and. You know, so when I think about when my relationship ended, a lot of people were very critical of my decision. Mm. And I thought to myself, like, I need you now. Mm. Like, I don't need you to to get rid of me. I don't need you to judge my choice because you've never lived a moment in my body. And it was the moment that so many people who loved me or I loved, um, loved, I sort of put in quotes, because it was under the condition that I lived the story that we were all living. And when I decided not to do that, it was like, let's exile Mark or get him in line Mm -hmm. as opposed to look at all of our discomfort that's created just by relationship ending, you know, which is so human. Mm -hmm. And so I really sought to create a place where endings are actually okay, that they're actually beginnings, that they're celebrated, that you'll be held through that, that, and so, you know, much like your journey of, of discovering belonging, mine was similar, born from needing it.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: know? And So I, I'm fascinated by that exile that exists in our humanness.
1: hmm Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like it's impossible, as, a, as I'm sort of endeavoring to write about uh, to write this book, I felt like it was impossible to actually have a conversation about belonging without talking about exile, because they're like, they're dark, it's the dark sister <laughs> of, of belonging. And um, so what I discovered was that one of the, that belonging, we think of it as a static place of attainment, that if we just keep searching for it, you know, that uh, one day (laughs) we'll find it and it will welcome us and we will feel a sense of belonging and, you know, um, and then we'll live happily ever after. But I believe that belonging is actually dynamic and that it requires periods of exile and separateness in mm. to thrive because there is this normal attrition process that needs to take place. The image that I like to use is if you've ever seen a flower opening in time-lapse photography, there's this yeah. very subtle, as the flower opens, contraction that happens before it opens wider. And then it contracts a little bit and then it opens wider. So those contractions are what I call initiations by exile initiations by exile. And we all have these moments where a place where we felt like we belonged for whatever reason, sometimes from our own volition, like in your case, or sometimes because we're actually kicked out of that place or we're heartbroken. Sometimes it comes in the form of a devastating loss or illness. But or a demotion, something like that. But we'll be kicked out of that place of belonging. It's like the door just slams shut. And we can't go home anymore. Mm. Suddenly, and often overnight, the people we thought were friends are not friends. The job we used to identify is no longer our identity. And suddenly, we're, we're all the way lost. And that is the moment that we are in exile, and sometimes it can go on a very long time. But this is the part of the journey where I think each of us is actually being initiated. Because in that time when we are exiled, we have an opportunity to really take inventory of what we truly value, of what is actually important to us. And like you said, to separate from the group mind, whatever that might be, and to really turn towards the self and to disidentify from the collective and say, okay, what do I want? What do I need? What's important to me when everything else is lost? What is the spark that keeps me alive? What is the thing that drives me forward? and when we discover that thing we have to protect it so carefully and eventually begin to emerge from exile with this new knowledge and find a way to then walk in the world with the medicine that you've retrieved from your descent and um, this could look like you know starting an amazing podcast that people really relate mm-hmm. to and um can hear their own story and yours and the people that come onto your podcast or it could look like you know being a volunteer in your community or helping people who have been through what you've been through, whatever it looks like. It can take a million forms. Um, but it's it is the unassailable part of the self now that you will never be willing to give up. And um, sometimes these initiations happen more than once in a person's lifetime. Um, there can be smaller ones and bigger ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love having this perspective because it reminds those of us who are feeling so completely alone. And right now, actually, we're recording this in the middle of a global pandemic and people are really suffering from a kind of imposed exile. Um, but I, And I do think that there is value in even asking these questions now of now that we have stopped part stopped participating in the way we've always participated. Can we really take a beat to ask how we've been going about things and what are the things that we need to change and how are we uh, not willing to compromise anymore going forward from here?
0: Yeah. The, The thought that, well, I love the idea that exile is necessary, you know, because then it makes me not reject the thought of exile, but rather embrace the gifts that have become from it. That you gather pieces of yourself that were exiled prior to the actual experience of exile, which is really interesting. That when you're booted out of the system or you step out of the system, whether it's by choice or by someone else's choice, that you then realize what outfit you have to put on to get back in it. And I mean, any outfit you have to put on is is weight, you know. And sometimes it's actual armor, and sometimes it's a suit, and sometimes it's you know jogging pants, which
1: mm-hmm. those are
0: not too bad to wear. Let's be honest. But you know, there's <laughs> there's something. At least that's comfortable. That's probably the experience of belonging is so many
1: of us wearing your pajamas, the old pants anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I mean, I. To think of that we are in this moment, stepping out of the way the systems went in terms of the momentum of our treatment of the planet, the way that we're also busy, you know, our busyness and that we are enforced a pause of sorts, which I want to acknowledge the privilege that even exists in the ability to afford a pause.
1: Yes. And the and the inequities that have been revealed too, of who and, and had exemplified, the
0: cause. exaggerated even now. Yeah, you know, the wealth transfer of wealth occurring at an ex, exorbitant rate prior to the pandemic, compared to yeah. And I I think about being able to sit within that and recognize like how much I traveled before the pandemic and now how much I don't, and that you know I'm really valuing being still and being in, but you you know, recognizing that the pace of time is actually much slower if you're present.
1: And that there are different ways to travel too. <laughs> As an O'Neero myself, uh, traveling in the inner realms, I think is um, an incredibly valuable endeavor that I wish more people would embark on.
0: <laughs> Let's talk more about that. Because, you know, you said that you teach people to, uh, understand their dreams and like, what a time to be present with our, cause our minds are going to go into ruminating and catastrophizing. And I'm curious, like, where do we begin that journey into the psyche and how can dreams play with that? So I'm I'm curious as to what's our way out. Just, can you fix all this for us?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, the beautiful thing is not one of us has to do it alone. I mean, that's not true. All of us have to do it alone, but we are doing it alone together, um, Mm. which is to say we're building a new consciousness together. So the smallest part that you contribute um, is actually a a huge part because um, it's like an invisible Temple that we're building together, you know, and uh, so where do you begin with dreams? I mean, this this part is is a tricky to get uh, to get started because we really have lost the ability to speak the symbolic language, and um, this is a result of living in a very materialistic culture, which is to say. By materialism, I don't just mean the accumulation of things, but I mean the entire philosophical construct that only things that we can see and touch and prove are valuable and everything that's invisible is um, worthless or um, useless, or a distraction. So there's there's a hu- that's the biggest hurdle I think to get over is to make this um, small but giant perspective shift, which says that dreams are valuable. <laughs> They're incredibly yeah. valuable. And my argument to explain that would be to say that anything that was invented in the world, everything that was invented in the world, first had to be dreamed. It first had to be created. Um, on the uh, canvas of the imagination and so the aptitude for dreaming and for imagination the ability to converse with the greater something which i call nature which is expressing itself in our dreams is the most valuable tool going forward and so how do we begin to reclaim this mother tongue, which is the symbolic language? You know, I think the very first thing to do is really just to begin to write our dreams down. If nothing else, just to be curious about them is a fantastic starting place. The truth is that most, that this is a very natural language for us, but we just don't value it in modernity. So, I mean, you can trace back um, pretty much any indigenous culture globally and find different dreaming traditions. And there's um, no end to the different ways that we can approach our dreams, you know, whether it's dancing our dreams or uh, painting our dreams or writing poetry from our dreams or even just turning their image around in our mind's eye and letting it work on us and our imagination. These are all incredibly valuable ways to practice. But the way that I like to teach uh, approaching dreams is what I call courtship. And um, the courtship of dreams, I love this old timey word because it's so, you know, out of favor. You know, people (laughs) don't do courtship anymore.
0: But in the old- we swipe, we should can What's I just that? swipe can I just swipe left and right to my dreams? You know, right. I think like exactly. And just like I swipe right oh. to that dream left to that one. I didn't like it.
1: <laughs> it's just, just give me the bottom line. I just want to yeah. get to it. Right. You know? that, we just off. want to
0: hack it. Can I hack it?
1: <laughs> Which is why people love dream dictionaries because they're just they can just look up a thing and it says this is this is that you dream of bananas. It means that your uncle's gonna inherit money, you know. <laughs> so, nonsense. Um, most of those dream dictionaries are really rubbish. There are some occasional ones that give you sort of a variety of prompts and then you can kind of uh, try them on and see if they resonate or not. But for the most part this whole bottom line thing, it doesn't work and courtship, in the old time way, is so, that you know you see or meet somebody that you are very attracted to and that you are are curious about and that you admire, and you circle them, you know, slowly from a respectful distance. And the whole hope of courtship is that you discover what they love, what they want, what they need, and that maybe you can then live your life in such a way that you can provide that for them. That's how courtship. With, uh, works. And in the end, the hope is that you uh, you become married, right? That you find a union between those two. So I think of dreams in this very same way. I like to treat them as very living, breathing beings. And that our, um, we have to change our acquisitional approach to dreams instead of swiping left and saying, I want it." you know, what does this dream mean for me? you know you know yes. like treating it like an oracle instead we become wondrous about it and we circle it and try to find what it wants what it needs what its mm-hmm. secret longing is and um it's not a very popular way to go about it because people are quite impatient and they just you know they they want that uh, quick payoff but actually the quick payoff is not very nutritious. It's like the difference between eating junk food and having a, a wonderfully nourishing meal full of yeah. nutrients. The nutritious approach is to actually have a long standing relationship with your symbols where you're, it actually becomes a conversation. And as you ask a question, it responds. And then you respond to that response. And eventually, um, everybody is changed. By the exchange, so this is just the approach that I teach. And um, the biggest thing that um, I place an emphasis on is curiosity. I just want people to be curious about their symbols to see if they can really elicit descriptions and get as many details as possible. And often, illumination just happens as a result of asking artful
0: questions just starting to have a sense of inquiry, you know, to pause. I think about uh, so much of the response or my my previous response to dreams is like, what is this teaching me? You know, it becomes very egocentric or self-focused as opposed to, I love what you said, that it, it is actually this dance, that it's its own entity, its own message, its own symbol, that it's not, Maybe just for you that it's about the relationship, it's about the interaction, and that I mean, gosh, that should be how we approach all relationship that we're curious right <laughs> yes. you now.
1: Well, that's the great thing is that dream work actually teaches us so many relationship skills, because, you know, we were talking about that symmetry before. It's like, as you undergo this process, this respectful kind of circling and things are magically revealed from that process, then that naturally carries into how you approach relationships, or how you approach strangers, or how you approach politics, or approach your the world in general. So That's why I think it has such a transformative potency to it. It's really teaching us how nature behaves.
0: Well, and how it speaks to us. You know, I think that's such a, I think of some of the dreams that I've had that were memorable or repeated themselves. You know, I remember when I was uh, in my early twenties, I used to chew tobacco and I'm from Alberta, you know, it's like the Texas. (laughs) It happened. It happened. And (laughs) When I I quit, actually, when I always wanted to quit, but you know it's hard to do. And I remember I almost died after I broke my leg, and I remember promising that I would never chew again a day in my life if I made it through that moment. And I would have dr- I would have dreams where I would I would do it again, and my teeth would fall out. And I was very you know I took those as messages, like you made a deal, you made a contract And the consequence might be, (laughs) won't be just your teeth. But, you know, I I remember taking those messages very, they were very visceral, those dreams. And I remember I would wake up with shame as if I had actually made that choice. And I listened to them for sure because I I, I, I took them as a very, uh, because it was so weird to me that my psyche was doing that, that that was a message I was getting. But I was terrified of revisiting that part of of, uh, myself, I guess.
1: Mm, Yeah, and there, you know, you're, you're taking it the dream literally. Um, But there might have also been a symbolic dimension to it around, you know, whatever was going on in your life at the time, you know, teeth are so much about uh permanence and and maturity so if Mm. there were any uh fears that you were having around the time around your own longevity and you know the things that are permanent in your life or that you hope are permanent in your life that might have been coming up for you or it might have had to do with how you you know teeth or how you process food they're how you break things down. So the ability to kind of chew on and process things. So there's just so, so much so that we can explore. Um, and it really just involves being curious and, yeah. and also beginning to think symbolically, which is really difficult because we're used to
0: taking things very literally. Yeah, I didn't even think about any of those things. <laughs> you know, I as you say them, I'm like, yeah, that was... When I was in the relationship and pressured to get engaged, right, so that makes a lot of sense. Permanence, you know, because I did very much feel like it was a choice I couldn't undo. Because right. divorce obviously causes so much exile uh, for on on so many layers of the, the layers you were speaking of. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But I never even no worries. Um, I never even thought of that. And, and even the idea of masticating on a thought, like chewing on a thought or chewing on uh, processing, not speeding through things, to be patient. To oh, you've act, you've given me a whole new world to explore.
1: It's so exciting. I just find so, I I just find dreams so endlessly fascinating. And um, I constantly feel like a beginner with dreams because, you know, even though, you know, some people might call me a dream expert, the truth is I show up to every dream not knowing anything (laughs) about the dreamer or the dream or where it's going to go or what it's going to reveal. Um, And so there's this wonderful humility that dreams teach us about just remaining in a place of not knowing and uh and being surprised and you know experiencing the awe and wonder of a thing when it does reveal like i just got you know chills when you started talking about the connection to permanence um and what was going on in your life at the time you know how amazing i never would have made, made that connection had we not had the conversation so for both of us it's like, yeah
0: for both of us which is <laughs> you know to think like the purpose of the dream could literally have been to bring it to this conversation to get that form of inquiry to now open up a symbolic path for so many people listening of like oh that's what the symbolism means that's what you know and i i, I it's neat to think that even the space of curiosity to even wanting to understand them or wanting to think about them leads to potentially just a life changing conversation, or um, that you are curious about it and you're not just going to exile your dream. That you're like, oh, that's just a thing it, that just happens when you sleep. And it's like, how do you know that when you sleep, you're actually not awake? And when you're awake, you're actually asleep? Like, with, you know, that it brings on all these different levels of conversation, right?
1: which is the real dream which is the real reality
0: <laughs> right it's such a because you know I've, alan watts is one of my favorites and i remember him saying like what was it, what it will be like to go to sleep and never wake up but what was it like to wake up having never gone to sleep you know to think that we fear death but we actually come from it and i never really thought of that till i really paid attention to his words
1: <laughs> you know and It makes me think of, um, there's an old Tibetan Buddhist story, Chang Tzu goes to sleep, and he dreams that he's a butterfly. And when he wakes up, he says, what, am I a man dreaming I was a butterfly? Or am I a butterfly dreaming I'm a man? (laughs) Yeah, And what if it's both? You know, right. What if the you know the two? I really think tending to the equivalency of these two dimensions is where real magic lives.
0: <laughs> Agreed. Like you said before, the living in the space of 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 um liminence.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, is that the right word? The liminal,
1: the liminal. liminal. Yeah.
0: And I, you know, that space between worlds that like, what happens if we actually, everything we think is how the world works is actually not true. What happens if uh, who I believe I am is actually not true. And I think once you start to accept that fluidity to self and the fluidity to how we perceive the world or how we perceive the rules that we're free, all of a sudden we're like, wait if I, if I belong to myself, then I can never be outcast, you know, and I, there's sort of a power to that, that then if you choose a relationship from that space, then they can leave and they'll never take anything with them. And I, I think that's a really, that's the gift of being left is recognizing that you only give them something when they go, if, if they take some, if they take you with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm always the invitation back to just how do we heal how do we grow how do we expand how do we how do we do this together
1: well i've been blessed with uh, a great love in this lifetime Um, and uh, every day is sort of showing up at that threshold to just deeply appreciate what it's like to be in a relationship with somebody who's as committed to his own um, belonging to himself as I am. And um, I feel very blessed. We both do feel very blessed every day to have found such a true love.
0: Yeah. I I feel the same uh, level of gratitude myself. You know, my partner's as interested in similar things in our own personal work and our collective work and, You know, it's a, I think about how many uh, relational experiences we have to have or just exiles uh, that are important in order to recognize when we show up, when they show up, when and what it means to step out of the Disney story and actually be within the space of reality together. Mm -hmm. And the liminal space, because that's a pretty great space, too. Well, I'm... Uh, you know, for everyone listening, I'm so grateful for you to come on and share just the tip, you know, people are going to be like, okay, I got to get more into this dream stuff. (laughs) and, And just your level of depth and your care and concern for the subject of belonging. And, you know, I said at the beginning that your words are just fierce. They are beautiful. And you write from such a space of truth. And that's why when I confronted your, when I met your words, when I found them, I was just like, wow, this is the type of uh, person I want to speak to because, you know, it's a, when it comes from that space of just utter knowing of, of experience, it, it translates differently. It's written in a different energetic. So mm. thank you for the work that you do.
1: Oh, it's so my pleasure. I, I'd love to um, read a prayer sure. for yeah. your listeners, if that's Okay.
0: Absolutely. Okay.
1: So this is just a prayer that um, I put in the beginning of the book. For the rebels and the misfits, the black sheep and the outsiders, for the refugees, the orphans, the scapegoats and the weirdos, for the uprooted, the abandoned, the shunned and invisible ones, may you recognize with increasing vividness that you know what you know, May you give up your allegiances to self-doubt, meekness, and hesitation. May you be willing to be unlikable and in the process be utterly loved. May you be impervious to the wrongful projections of others and may you deliver your disagreements with precision and grace. May you see with the consummate clarity of nature moving through you that your voice is not only necessary, but desperately needed to sing us out of this muddle. May you feel shored up, supported, entwined, and reassured as you offer yourself and your gifts to the world. May you know for certain that even as you stand by yourself, you are not alone.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. a message, what a way to end. So where do people find more of you?
1: Oh, well, you can find most of everything I do on my website, which is tokopa.com, T-O-K-O-P-A.com. And um, I have a self-study course called Dream Drops, which people really love. It kind of puts in, uh, drops an email into your inbox every day for 30 days and it only takes about three to five minutes to read but they're quite rich and it will help to deepen your dreaming practice so if people want to learn more about their dreams that's a great place to start and then you can also find me on social media i'm on instagram at tokopa without the dash t-o-k-o-p-a and facebook too so yeah come get in touch and stay connected
0: yeah. You know, when all the people listening, if you're like, okay, I want to get into some dream stuff, go pick up uh, that course. That sounds like a really beautiful entry point in order to step into that space of curiosity and, and listen to the language of symbols.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you can um, pick up my book, Dream uh, Belonging, just about anywhere. You can find it on Amazon and any of the online retailers too.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.